0: Yeah, two and a half, but yes. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to go ahead and my voice is coming back, but not perfectly. So I'm going to try to get started on chapter 13 for maybe the first hour if my voice holds up. And then go on. I ha- I do have another lab to work on, so I'm going to do another lab, so we're keep up on the labs that we're doing in that way if I need to lecture a little extra next week to keep to catch up on lectures I can and if not and we stay up then I won't even won't even worry about it. So the assignments due today we have homework 5 which is the one I extended today and the second article review so you can get those in and I'll take care of those hopefully this weekend Uh, the iTunes quiz I actually switched that originally said it was due today apparently when I put it in D2L I put in the dates for next week so I just extended it to next week. Yes, ma'am? So does that mean that homework five is the then? Yeah. Okay. And then the other ones this weekend, quiz five is now up and available. That's on chapters 11 and 12 that we just finished. You can do that. And if you're going to do any corrections for exam two, recall not as much credit as exam one because I already gave you some extra points on that one, but you can still get some if you want to turn those in on Monday as well. And then coming up next week, we have a homework on... uh, homework due on Tuesday, solar observations due on Tuesday. We'll probably go over the solar project as well on Tuesday. I'll be doing that as the lab, so that'll be our lab for Tuesday. And then exam four, right now scheduled for Wednesday. If we end up behind because of this, between me and my voice, I may push that off till Thursday. Um, If we don't get through the three chapters in time. So it depends on how everything goes. Uh, the beginning of that, but I can't, I have Monday I have a full double lecture, Tuesday I can't because I have to get through some of the stuff. So if I don't quite make it then we'll just extend the exam and do an exam Thursday and then the following Thursday will be the final. So it'll, it'll still work out. Alright, well picture of the day for today is four, a four planet sunset. So seeing four planets, the Sun is just set below the horizon here a little while before. So Sun is well down below. And you can see three of the planets right here. You have Jupiter, Venus, and Mercury. The fourth planet being the Earth. You're seeing the Earth as well. There is actually a star that's visible up here. Uh, around the brighter stars is actually visible as well. But really you're seeing three planets and the Earth. So this is a site you would have had a couple of weeks ago, or sort of shortly after the beginning of class. There was a time when Uh, Jupiter, Venus, and Mercury were all visible in the evening sky just after sunset. Uh, Venus is still there. Venus is still visible and will get a little bit more prominent over the course of the year. Be a little bit better towards September, October time. Uh, Be very bright. But if you look out in the west after sunset, you will be able to see see a bright object sitting over there. It's most likely Venus that's going to be sitting there. Mercury is also still visible but still very hard to see. It's a lot fainter than the other objects. Jupiter is not anymore. Jupiter has moved into the sun, not literally, but moved in the general direction of the sun. It's being blocked by it. And it will slowly come out in another couple of months. We'll begin to see Jupiter in the morning sky uh, visible again. So, four, plan- four planets, Get to see four planets at one shot there. Question, question. Go back and forth this time. All righty, well, let's go ahead and get started on chapter 13, which is our last chapter on stars. Chapter 13 talks about the last two types of stars that we haven't really covered yet. We talked about uh, normal stars, uh, stars like the sun. Uh, we talked about a little bit about white dwarf stars, what the sun will become. But there are two other remnants that can be left behind when a star dies. A white dwarf is one of them and is the most common that can be left behind. A neutron star and a black hole are the other two things that can be left behind. Now, a white dwarf is an incredibly compact object. Smash down, take the mass of the sun, smash it down to the size of the Earth. Get rid of all the extra space between the atoms. Neutron stars and black holes get even more weird. So. Uh, Even more compact, a neutron star, you take that same amount of material, or even more, and instead of crushing it down to the size of the earth, you crush it down to the size of a city. So you're getting that incredibly compact. You've not only squished out all the space between the atoms, but you've squished out all all the space within the atom. So the electrons are gone, squished into the nucleus, and all you have is really a gigantic nucleus. You've gotten rid of all the extra space. And then black holes, we've heard of. Um, Very, very weird objects. What's shown here on the opening photograph is actually a supernova remnant. Uh, Very pretty colors. The colors are false colors. You wouldn't see it if you were to look at it. You wouldn't see it looking like that. But the false colors typically will trace out different chemical elements. And we talked about supernovae. When a star explodes, it'll send that material back out into space. It'll become the next generation of, become part of the next generation of stars. And that's what you're seeing here. I don't have the color coding for it, but blue would be one color, green another would be another element, and the oranges and yellows would be another one. So what we're going to cover in this chapter are, first of all, we're going to start off with neutron stars, and look at what a neutron star is, and then a pulsar, which is a version of a neutron star. It's a very specific case that happens of a neutron star, and we'll look at those. Uh, Neutron star binaries, if you get two neutron stars orbiting each other, you can have a binary system system of neutron stars. So you can have that as well. And then we're going to look at not just gamma ray bursts, but also X-ray bursts. We get bursts of X-rays, we get bursts of gamma rays that occur, and perhaps some of the reasons that those are happening are related to the neutron stars. Then we'll move in the second uh, second half of the chapter. We'll talk about black holes. Look a little bit about Einstein's theories of relativity in terms of how to explain black holes and try to understand them a little bit. And then space travel. What would it be like if you were to travel near a black hole? And we'll look at some of the ideas there. And then finally, what kind of evidence do we have? Are there really black holes around? They're a great concept, but do they really exist? Do we have any evidence? For a black hole. A black hole, the idea of a black hole is that it has so much gravity that light cannot escape from it. Now, light doesn't mean visible light. Light means anything. So, anything, even something traveling as fast as light cannot escape from it means nothing can escape from it. So, how do you detect something when nothing can get, can't give off any kind of electromagnetic radiation, can't send out any kind of particles? How do you? detect something like that. And we'll look we'll look for the observational evidence that we have that black holes do exist. But let's start off with neutron stars here. Um, we had recall last time we had two types of supernova. There was a type one, which is a white dwarf tearing itself apart. Once that happens, pretty much nothing is left. It's all gone. It has completely torn itself apart. And there is whatever was there of the original star, that white dwarf, is long since gone. A type 2 supernova. Uh, part of the core may survive. So a little bit of it may be left behind, and that is extremely dense. So not just, you know, not just dense from things we think here on Earth, not just dense like a white dwarf, but as dense as the atomic nucleus. How dense is that? You can think about a teaspoonful of that weighing, you know, billions of tons. So one teaspoonful of the nuclear matter would weigh billions of tons. And that's what we call a neutron star. What happens in the collapse, as a white dwarf star pushed all the electrons as close together as they could, if it collapses closer, you can push those electrons into the nucleus. The electrons and protons can become neutrons, essentially and you get a great big ball of neutrons. So it's really a great big atomic nucleus that is floating out there in space. But it's an atomic nucleus that you can actually see. So in terms of size, it's about 10 kilometers across, six miles across, you the know, size of a city. But you have all the mass that was there in the star. All you've done is squish out all of that space that existed between it. So all the space is gone. All the space between the atoms is gone. All the space within the atoms is gone. You have got rid of all the empty space and all of a sudden you have this gigantic nucleus out there in space. Now to give an idea of the size, there's an example, not of a true new- neutron star, but a model of a neutron star, uh, next to Manhattan Island. So giving you an idea of how big these are. They're not very big. Uh, the size of the size of a city but they're gonna have the mass of the sun. They have the mass of the sun. They're actually also gonna have the gravity of the sun. So their gravity is extremely intense, and in fact they might have one, two, three times the mass of the sun. It means that they can have the same gravity as the sun, or even a little bit more. And when you get very close to one of these, the gravitational effects become very intense. So you're gonna get very, very strong gravity A neutron star would have a solid surface, but you're not going to go land on it, even if it were cooled off. First of all, they'd have a very high temperature, and you'd be vaporized before you got there. But the gravity is too high. Even for a white dwarf star, if you were to actually try to land on that, you'd be crushed flat by the gravity. The gravitation is that intense that you would not be able to physically walk on it. Yes, it does have a solid surface, unlike our sun, which does not our sun is just a gas big ball of gas that gets denser and denser as you go further down here you would have a solid surface but again you're never going to be able to land on it first of all you're talking temperatures of hundreds of thousands of degrees so vaporize anything immediately and an intense gravity that even if you waited the trillions of years it would take for one of these to cool off the very intense gravity would squish you flat if you tried to you know step on step onto it you wouldn't even get to that point because your spacecraft would be squished flat as it, la- as it landed. It would just be crushed right into that neutron star. Now what kind of properties do they have? I've told you about how massive they are, like the mass of the sun. I've told you about how uh, big they are, about the size of a city. They also rotate. Now if you recall, we talked about rotation. Remember, the, as the star formed, That big gas cloud had some very small rotation, very little amount. And as it collapsed down to form the star, it spun even faster. So it went from taking maybe millions of years to spin around once, to spinning down and spinning around like the sun maybe in about a month, taking about one month to make a rotation. As you collapse the core of the star, the same thing happens again. It spins faster and faster as you take that material and crush it down. it's gonna spin even faster. So you have this thing the size of a city spinning in less than a second. So making one spin, one rotation, in less than a second. And in fact, some of them rotate three, four times a second. Some of them will rotate. We'll see that it'll rotate actually hundreds of times a second. So they rotate extremely fast compared to anything else that we've looked at. You know, the Earth takes a day. Jupiter takes about 10 hours. Uh, the Sun takes about a month. Other objects take a lot longer. These are the fastest rotating objects that we know of in fact of fractions of a second to orbit. Just to, to spin once. And that means that they're at the verge of tearing themselves apart. They're spinning that fast. If you imagine anything spinning that fast, you know, try to spin you know, the Earth three times a second. What's going to happen to it? It's going to rip itself apart, right? The forces are just going to tear it apart. It's not going to be, its structural integrity is not enough to be able to spin it that fast. So these are so dense, they can actually spin at that rapid field. Now the other thing that gets condensed as it collapses is the magnetic field. So as it collapses, the magnetic field lines condense and the magnetic field gets much, much stronger as well. So, they rotate very quickly. Extremely strong magnetic field. High mass. Mass of the sun. Or larger. And a very small size. So, very unusual objects compared to anything else we've talked about so far. They're not like any of the other stars. Other stars have magnetic fields, but relatively weak magnetic fields. More like that of our sun. They rotate, some of them will rotate faster, some will rotate slower. No regular star would be able to rotate this fast. If you tried to spin the sun to rotate this fast, it would tear itself apart as well. But these properties allow us to see certain things about a neutron star. And one of the things that was discovered early on, this was 1967, was discovered a pulsar. Now it was not known what this was at first. Although we're going to find out that it actually is a neutron star. But it was, uh, radio telescopes were really picked up in the 1950s and gotten great in the 1960s. And you'd look for different, you'd look for the intensity, you'd look at the brightness of an object. And you found an object, and what was found here was that this object got brighter and emitted little pulses of radiation. Time scale here is in seconds. This whole thing is about 35 seconds. So how did this thing pulse and pulse you know, very regularly every, you know, what? Second and a half or so? Every second and a half to two seconds? You know, very unusual when you see something going that regularly. And in fact, one of the first things that it was thought was could this be, could this be an extraterrestrial signal? Could this be a sign of intelligent life? Because nothing known in astronomy at the time could send pulses with that short of a time period. If it was over days or weeks or months or years, that was no big deal. We could understand that. But what could possibly be sending you a pulse with very regular, extremely regular intervals when you measure them at a, at a second or a little over a second? So it was actually, you know, tentatively named one of the one of the. Uh, Names for it was LGM-1, Little Green Men. So, Little Green Men 1, so possibly a signal from an extraterrestrial civilization because it was so regular. Now, what was eventually found was that it was a neutron star, something very small. Neutron stars do spin this fast. And some of them can actually emit pulses of radiation. So as they emit pulses of radiation, then we can detect them if we're in the right orientation here on Earth. And that's what a pulsar is. It's just a pulsing uh, radio source, is how they were discovered. But they can also pulse in visible light. They can give visible light pulses. They can give X-rays and even gamma ray light pulses if they're energetic enough. So pulsar is really a very rapidly spinning neutron star. But how do we get it to flash on and off? Why do we not just see it at some brightness? How do we actually get it to turn on and off? Well, what it really is, you think about the effect that a lighthouse would have. Lighthouse out there on the edge of the ocean or the lake has its beam going around and scans the, scans the horizon, scans around the horizon so that you know the ships can see it. Well, a neutron star has a similar thing. It is sending out a beam of radiation. Remember, we saw the jets. Bef- we saw jets before when we looked at the uh, forming young stars. Well, some stars can form uh, jets too. You have very strong magnetic fields. Remember, they're much, much stronger than that of the sun. Magnetic fields are very good at confining material, keeping it confined. That means the only place that material can actually escape are through the poles. That's where the magnetic field lines are coming into this neutron star. And that's the weakest point. So that's where particles can actually escape. You couldn't stream particles out here. They won't cross through all these magnetic field lines, especially when they're not strong. When they're that strong. So this is spinning. Here's the magnetic field. Magnetic field pointed here. Imagine this is rotating up and down, or rotating around an axis that goes up and down. It spins. And that beam will then spin out and point at different parts of the universe. If the Earth happens to be in the place of one of those beams, we will then see it as a pulsar. If we happen to be someplace else, if we're not at some place where that beam points, then we'll never see it. So if we're way off over here someplace, way off over here, we're never going to actually see that as a pulsar. It's still there, it's still pulsing, it's just not visible to us. And you can do the same thing with a lighthouse, right? If you're not in the path of the beam, if you're well out of that, far above it, far below it, you're not going to see that beam shining right into your eyes. Whereas if you're on the ship that's exactly in the path of it, you're going to actually get that bright glow as it comes, as it comes through. So, it's only a very special case. We're not every, every pulsar is a neutron star. There is a neutron star there. But we don't necessarily see every neutron star as a pulsar because this can be a very narrow beam. So unless it happens to point right at us, we're never going to see it. Now, these pulsars slow down slow down relatively quickly over time, uh, relatively quickly astronomically, meaning tens of millions of years. Once that happens, the neutron star is almost impossible to see. Now this neutron star may be hundreds of thousands of degrees, very high temperature, should be very bright, but it isn't because it's so tiny. You're trying to see this thing the size of a city and you're talking about looking for that light years away. So no matter how bright it is, unless it's sending us these pulses, it's almost, not quite, but almost impossible to see. So they become essentially visible to us. Invisible. The pulsars will also not be visible if the jets never point towards us. So if that jet is spinning around and a pulsar spins out in space and it has A jet that's going here and circling around in a big circle there, if you happen to be in that beam, you're going to see it. But if you happen to be, you know, right in the middle of it, it's making a big circle around you, but it never points at you. You're never going to be able to see that as a pulsar, and it's going to be very hard to detect that neutron star. So, it's a lot of mass, but very hard to detect. But can we? Well, here's one. Here's one we can see. We looked at this image before. Not quite as much detail. This is the Crab Nebula. That was a supernova explosion that occurred in 1054. Right about here in the center of that explosion. If we zoom in on that and look at that, this is actually looking in the visible and in X-rays. We can detect the pulsar. And that's actually visible there. Jets of material coming out of it. And if we look here, zooming in again, there's the, there's the area of the pulsar. If we zoom in again, there it is. You know, Now you see it. Now you don't. It's gone. So it emits that beam and it, gives, it glows bright for a tiny fraction of a second. And then it fades off again. Then it brightens again for a tiny fraction of a second. And again, turns back off. So. It's not like flipping a light switch on and off, it's the way it's spinning, but it's the same effect. You see it, it's either there or it's not there with a very regular uh, (coughs) pattern. And we can actually see this one, the crab pulsar is actually visible in visible light. So not just radio waves, which is how the first ones were discovered, but visible light as well. Now I said that the uh, crab nebula is actually visible in other parts of the spectrum. And these are looking at gamma rays. So these images are actually detecting gamma rays. And there is the crab pulsar. And you can actually see a little bit, especially the uh, Jaminga pulsar, which actually happens to be located pretty close to it in the same general direction of the sky. You can see how it's very faint, almost invisible, bright, faintens again, gets bright again, with that same kind of pattern these ones are very quick. The period is about a quarter of a second. So that means this thing is whipping around about four times a second. So extremely fast. I mean try to imagine many things of any good size that can spin four times a second and still manage to hold themselves together. And they are, because we see them in gamma rays it means they haven't lost a lot of their energy yet. So as they fade down, they will emit only X-rays will remain, or X, sorry, only radio waves will remain. But when they're very young, a pulsar that's very young, Crab is only about a thousand years old. Right? We know we saw the supernova explosion a uh, little, little, little under a thousand years ago. It still is strong enough to emit gamma rays as well. Now, can you find a neutron star all by itself? It's not easy, but you can. And this is one that's been taken in the 1990s. It was discovered by Hubble, the Hubble Space Telescope. They said they're extremely hot. Core of the sun was a lot hotter. This one's about 700,000 degrees. And it's a million years old. Imagine how hot they are when they're just formed. So extremely hot. This one was able to be picked out here. We can get it from what it is, from the high temperature. Nothing else will be able to handle that kind of temperature. And it was observed here in 96, and then observed later in 99, a couple of times in March and September, that you could actually detect this one visibly. So it has to be close enough to be able to be seen, and you've got to be looking in the right, right direction, you know, catching it almost quite by accident. It's not something that's just going to stand out at you when it's not visible to us as a pulsar. If it's visible as a pulsar, then it is. It's standing out, shining this light at us, making it glow, saying, Here I am, you know, shining a flashlight out, saying, Here I am, here I am, come find me. If it's not, if it's either slowed down enough after a million years, pulsar is reaching the end of its life, so it may not emit a lot of radiation in that form, or it may just not be pointed towards us, then they're much, much harder to find. They can be but there's only a few cases like this where pulsars have been found sorry, where neutron stars have been found you know, independently of finding them with either within a supernova remnant or as a pulsar. All right, binary stars, neutron star binaries. How do we put two neutron stars together? Well, neutron stars can orbit each other just as a uh, regular stars can and you get them orbiting around each other, uh, again, just like an orbit, which is interesting because it means that when you have a supernova explosion, which is how you form a neutron star, right, the star tears itself apart, it's a pretty violent explosion, but it's not violent enough to tear apart a star. Because if it were, then we wouldn't see the neutron star. We wouldn't see two neutron stars orbiting each other. That means you must have had two supernovae occur there, one Earth, one first. And then the other one must still have been a star at the time, and then that one must have gone supernova, leaving another neutron star behind. But one of the things that we see from some of these uh, neutron stars are X-rays. So, X-ray material. These are actually what's seen near the center of our galaxy, and it's a burst of X-rays. Doesn't look like anything fabulous, fabulous, right? Before, emitting some X-rays, not much here emitting a lot of x-rays for a short period of time. So, a little bit of an outburst in x-rays. Again, it doesn't, look, it doesn't look, the pictures don't look that amazing, but what this really is, is the same kind of thing that we see in on a white dwarf star. We talked about ANOVA. ANOVA was when material came from a main sequence star onto a white dwarf eventually build up to a critical mass and ignited, and caused an explosion on the surface. Well, it happens on a white dwarf star. There's no reason it couldn't happen on a neutron star. you got a neutron star in a binary system. It can collect material from it, from its companion, but it's going to be a much more intense explosion. You're not gathering this material onto a neutron, onto a white dwarf anymore you're gathering it onto a neutron star with a much higher gravity. So when you get enough there because of that intense gravitational field, instead of emitting a burst of visible light, they actually emit bursts of X-rays. And those are X-ray bursts. We find a lot of them towards the, in the direction, in fact, of the center of the galaxy. Just because there's a lot more stars there, so you've got a lot bigger area to look to look over but you have a much more intense gravitational field, and you get a much larger explosion and a much higher energy explosion, which is why we see it in x-rays. All right. So, one other type of uh, pulsar that we see, I said typically pulsars rotate a few times a second, maybe 10 or 20 times a second. There are a couple that will rotate hundreds of times. A second up to about the very limit, and that 's what we classify as a millisecond pulsar rotating in a few milliseconds for a few thousandths of a second. so extremely fast rotation, and in fact, you could, the calculations have been done that this is right up about at, at the limit of what a neutron star would be able to hold up eventually, if it spin anything fast enough it 's going to tear itself apart, so it 's not going to be able to hold up forever. If you spin it fast enough, if you tried to spin it a million times a second, eventually that neutron star would rip itself apart. How do we get a millisecond pulsar? Is they have to be spun up. You have to get them, you have to get them moving a little bit faster. They typically form in the typical range that we see, maybe th- 10, 20, 30 times a second rotating. If you want to get it going a little bit faster, you have to have matter spiraling into it, and that's what is shown here in red. The material is spiraling around. And if the neutron star is rotating in the right direction as this material comes in, every time it hits, gives it a little kick, gives it a little push. like pushing a kid on the swing. If you push it each time and you push it with a regular uh, pattern, it will speed up. The child will go faster on the swing well, here, this infalling matter is giving this neutron star a little kick. Every time a little bit of matter strikes it, it pushes it a little bit faster and a little bit faster. So instead of slowing down over time, which would be what you'd expect, when you have material in there pushing it and applying this extra energy, it actually can rotate faster and faster. So you could end up with these neutron stars that rotate at essentially their limit, about how fast they could possibly rotate without ripping themselves apart. Now, here is a, uh, the diagram is showing a globular cluster. Globular clusters, if you recall, are very old. So we're looking at very old stars, lots of stars have formed, lots of stars have gone through their lives, even stars like the Sun. And when we look at them, we see, so we can see, if we're looking for a lot of neutron stars, That's a good place to look because all the stars that would have become neutron stars have gone through their lives within that globular cluster. And when you look at this globular cluster, here it is visually. Let's take the core and zoom into that and look at that in x-rays. Then we start to see over a hundred x-ray sources in the center of this globular cluster. Now globular clusters are old, there aren't any young stars. They're all long since gone. Typically the stars you see are a lot of red giant stars. Nothing that should be X-ray sources. White Lots of white dwarf stars shouldn't be X-ray sources. Nothing that should be emitting X-rays. Many of what is seen here are probably pulsars spinning with that, with that incredible speed of spinning, spinning in the th- hundreds to a thousand times a second. So we're seeing evidence of lots of these in the center of a globular cluster, because that's where we'd expect. That's a good place to look, there's lots of stars there, and they're ones that have already gone through their lives. And the top part, again, is just reinforcing what I talked about from the last time. That material just gives it a little kick every single time. So as you have material spiraling in on this, it's just like giving a kid a push. You push them every time they come back, and they go higher and higher on the swing, well, this pulsar is spinning faster and faster, if you keep kicking it in the same direction, it's going to spin even faster. And that's what is hap- believed to happen with these millisecond pulsars. All right, x-ray bursts. So we get bursts of x-rays, very high energy, just like a nova explosion, except instead of being on the surface of a white dwarf, it's on the surface of a neutron star. Well, we also see bursts of gamma rays. So. Really, a big concern when they were first detected. Uh, when was this probably back in the '70s, early '80s? Um, in fact, they were discovered by looking for uh, things here on Earth, looking for nuclear explosions here on Earth, or violations of like the, te- uh, the test bans. So not supposed to be testing nuclear weapons above ground, but some were but if these explosions were seen, was this, a, was, this a te- was this some test? That's actually how they were first discovered. But they were found to be coming from space. And there's lots of them. This is over 2,000 plotted here that are found. And what you might notice is that they're really just spread out over the entire universe. This is a map of the entire universe. So looking from the North Pole, South Pole, all the way out to the east, all the way to the west, take the entire celestial sphere, both hemispheres of it, spread it out, and look at everything at once. You see that there's really no pattern to where these form. They're not just in our galaxy. They might be just down here. They're not clumped in one area or another area or another area. There's not many big areas where there aren't gamma-ray bursters. They seem to occur pretty much uniformly all over the universe. Which tells us they're not a part of our galaxy. If they were part of our galaxy, uh, such as like the x-ray bursters, you tend to see them clustered together near the galaxy. So these must come from outside. These must be something occurring further away, further outside of our own galaxy. Okay. So something that is found there. Again, not, nothing to do with nuclear tests as it was found, especially when you begin to find this many. But certainly a concern when they were first, first discovered. But because of the way they're spread out, and again, you see no pattern there, no pattern to how they're spread out, that they are, within, they are something outside of our own galaxy. Here's some examples of how bright they get. Uh, these are the light curves, just showing how, how many gamma rays you're detecting every second over time periods of, in this case, tiny fractions of a second. So here was an incredible burst. Where it uh, went about four times more, but only for a tiny fraction of a second. <coughs> this one lasted a little bit longer. Uh, you had a burst and maybe some bursts on top of the burst, but it lasted a number of seconds, you know, 30 or so seconds. Another one lasted a couple seconds. Again, a very bright burst, uh, maybe four, five, six times brighter than the typical background, what was detected before, you know. 5,000 counts, what's detected afterwards, about 40,000 counts, about eight times brighter. So definitely a very significant burst. But we've already talked about you know, bursts of visible light coming from explosions on a white dwarf star. We talked about visible um, examples of X-ray, bursts of X-rays coming from explosions perhaps on the surface of a neutron star. So where are we going to get gamma ray bursts? And no, it's not the explosions on a black hole might be the next thing you might jump at, but it won't be that. But what, what is going to cause these gamma ray bursts? Well, first of all, we find them. In some rare cases, we've actually been able to measure distances to them. And we're seeing things that are 2 billion parsecs away. Okay, 2 billion is a big enough number to try to imagine as it is and 2 billion parsecs, which are in, is a very large measure of distance, is really hard to imagine. A parsec is about three, a little over three light years, so you're talking about seven and a half billion light years away. That means these are things that when the, those gamma ray bursts occurred, the earth and the sun and all of that had not yet formed. The light has, that light and that energy has been traveling through space for more time than the earth, then since the earth is formed. It's also back about halfway to the origin of the universe. Universe being about 14 a billion years old. Here we're going back about half that. So on some rare occasions we can actually measure distances and we're learning that they're not, not nearby objects, not just are they all over the universe, but they're also very very far away. So you're looking at these objects as here in the visible light, you know, there we've ident- managed to identify the object. But very far, very far away, you see some closer galaxies. Um, a very, very distant object. So what do we think they are, they're formed? Well, there's a couple of models that are put forward to explain a, ga- a burst of gamma rays. Uh, one of these is, uh, involves a neutron star or in fact a neutron star in a binary system, bless you, you. as those two neutron stars orbit around each other, over time their orbits are going to decay and they're going to get closer and closer and closer together. And eventually, as those orbits decay, they would coalesce and merge and you'd form a dense object at the center with a disk of material around it and that burst could give out some kind of bursts of gamma rays. So as these two neutron stars coalesce together you might get this great burst of gamma rays. The other thing that might do that is a collapsing star. This goes back to a type 2 supernova. Type 2 supernova massive star reaches the end of its life it becomes unstable. Well that's exactly what we're talking about here is that The star collapses, that core collapses and rebounds, and explodes. But what some of the models show is that even though it rebounds with a lot of energy, there's a lot of material in that star it's trying to push away. And there are models where even though the the supernova tries to occur, it stalls. You're trying to push out a lot of energy, you're trying to push out all that material of the star above you you lose energy doing that. If there's enough material around it, you can actually contain the supernova. You can stop it. If you stop it, well, there's still no energy source It's gonna collapse back down. So you're trying to get a supernova here. It doesn't quite happen. It collapses, forms a black hole. That black hole starts sucking in matter. As it starts to suck in matter, it gives off a lot of energy. Not from within the black hole, but from the disk of material around it outside of the black hole itself. And that restarts and gives you a much more energetic supernova than you would have had in the first place. Much more energy actually restarts the supernova and starts it going again. So These are two models that are suggested and one of them, in fact this burst looks like a really, really bright supernova. So, gives some evidence towards the hypernova model that perhaps this is what we call a hypernova. Supernova would be, would form a neutron star at its center. Hypernova would be where that didn't quite work. The star was maybe too massive. It couldn't throw off enough of that material. And it collapses again, forms that black hole. And once that black hole forms and starts spinning in matter, it restarts the explosion and tears it apart. So this is one little bit of evidence that perhaps we're seeing. A very, very bright, very, very strong x-ray emission here. And at this one, if you can see, There's something bright left at the center, some sort of material. But there's actually a little bit of shell around it where the material has now finally begun to be thrown off. So, good idea that there might be a a hypernova being an extremely strong supernova that involves the formation of a black hole. So, speaking of black holes. And if we recall, let me put the numbers back up here. A white dwarf. A white dwarf had a limiting mass of about 1.4 times the Sun recall that's as massive as it could be if you had any more mass than that uh, the pressure of the star could no longer hold itself up and it collapsed down and it would collapse down and explode as a type 1 supernova so there's a limit to the mass of a white dwarf a neutron star has a limit too about three times that of the Sun. So you compress down to all neutrons, and those neutrons are pushing against each other, and they're holding the star up. They're keeping it from collapsing. There's no energy source in any of these stars. If you've got more than about three times the mass of the Sun there, even those neutrons can't hold up. So the neutrons crush in on themselves, And this new object collapsed down a little bit smaller. So it becomes smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and and denser and denser and denser and denser. And eventually reaches the point where that gravity is so intense that even light cannot escape. So if you imagine, here's the Earth. Imagine we can launch or you launch a rocket off into space. I can send it with enough speed. If I give it enough initial speed, it's going to escape from the Earth. It's going to get off the surface of the Earth and head off into space. If I don't send it with enough speed, it goes up, and it comes back down. Right? If I throw something up in the air, gravity pulls it back down. If I could throw it fast enough, couldn't come close, but if I could throw it fast enough, you know, I could throw it off into space. You're actually standing on the surface of some of the asteroids, you'd be able to do that. You could actually launch something into orbit by hand, because the gravity is so much lower. A black hole is so intense that the escape velocity, how much you need to, need, how much speed you need to escape from that object, is greater than the speed of light, meaning that even if it's a black hole, light will be turned around. So even light can't escape. It's not moving fast enough. It's going to try and it's just going to be captured in by the black hole. Which is how it gets its name. It's a great hole. It gathers everything around it. And it gives off no kind of light, no kind of energy uh, of any type. So not only can light not escape, but radio waves can't escape. X-rays can't escape. Gamma rays can't escape. Particles can't escape. So once something is within the limit of a black hole, there is no way for it to escape. Now that limit is not actually the black hole itself. The black hole condenses itself down to a point. I made that way too big for scale. I mean, technically it comes down to a point. So imagine all of that material crushed down to you know, the size of an atom or smaller. Incredibly tiny. So made that way, way too big for scale. But there's some surface around it, a theoretical surface, at which the escape velocity is equal to the speed of light. Anything that gets within that area is trapped and will never get out. Anything outside that area can escape. So if if there's material just outside this edge of the black hole, you could actually get away. It's only once you cross that boundary uh, that you're you're stuck. And that boundary depends on what the mass of the size is. So I'm going to give you some here. That's actually called, that border is called the event horizon. Meaning that once you reach there, that's the horizon beyond which you cannot see any events. Anything happening down here, you can't tell what's going on. You have no way to get any information out of here because it would have to travel faster than the speed of light to do that. It's also the Schwarzschild radius which again two names for the same thing but that's the radius at which the escape velocity is equal to the speed of light now every object has a Schwarzschild radius so the earth does if you could compress all if you compress the earth into a black hole its radius would be about a centimeter That would be, if you got closer to that, all the Earth's matter compressed down to less than a centimeter, the Earth would be a black hole. Anything that got within that centimeter would be trapped forever, unable to escape. The Sun has a lot more mass. Its Schwarzschild radius, its event horizon is a little bit bigger. About three kilometers. So a one solar mass object or a one solar mass black hole, if you got within about three kilometers, you'd be trapped forever. Now, a bigger object, if you've got 10 times the mass of the sun, it's even bigger and bigger. So that really depends, that Schwarzschild radius depends on how much mass you had in your object. And again, once you get down to the event horizon, once you get down, you collapse that, you can't know anything that goes on in here. So there's your black hole. If you want to take a trip into the black hole and visit, once you cross that event horizon, then you can see what's going on in there. But you can never get back out. Because in order to get out from in here, you have to be able to travel faster than the speed of light. All right. So we're going to look a little bit about relativity, and then I'll finish up uh, for today. Special relativity. There's, Einstein has two theories of relativity. One deals with motion, and one deals with gravity. So. The special theory of relativity deals with motion and it starts out with a postulate. And a postulate is just something that is assumed to be true and it's the basis of special relativity. And what Einstein said was that the speed of light is as fast as you can possibly go. There is no way to travel faster than the speed of light. And no matter who's measuring it you always get the same velocity doesn't matter whether you're measuring, whether you're moving or not moving, you get the same velocity. Now, that's not the case in our everyday experience. If you have a car here driving at 100 kilometers an hour, and you have a bullet being shot from that car that's moving at 1,000 kilometers per hour, being shot at 1,000 kilometers per hour, the observer in the car sees that bullet moving at 1,000 kilometers per hour but somebody standing out here observing it sees it moving at the speed of the bullet plus the speed of the car or 1,100 kilometers per hour. That's typically how it works, typically what you're used to here on Earth. If you're moving and you're throwing something, it moves with you and you get that extra little kick to its speed. That's not what happens with light. A light beam shot from a spaceship will travel at the speed of light and someone on the spaceship, even if it's traveling at half the speed of light, will still see it traveling at the speed of light. The observer standing still will see it traveling at exactly the speed of light. So it's a different here. The bullet travels at a different speed depending on exactly where you're observing. The light beam always travels exactly the same. Now actually, and we're not going to go into Einstein's equations, Unless you really want to, Okay, I don't think so. No. We can go into, they really, these two actually become the same set of equations when you look at very low speeds. So they actually, Einstein explains both cases. He can explain this, and he can explain this at very, very high speeds. So Einstein can actually explain both of them with his equations, so it's more general. But for the simplest cases, for when we're traveling at very, very small speeds compared to the speed of light, which is what we are. Everything we ever travel is very, very small compared to light. You know, Whether you're walking or running or in a car or in a plane or in a space, space shuttle, you know, you're still traveling very, very slow compared to the speed of light. But Einstein assumed this. There's no proof of it. So if we ever find that there is possible to travel faster than the speed of light, that throws out all of Einstein's general relativity because his is based on that assumption. That there is no way to travel faster than the speed of light. He also says that there's no absolute frame of reference. So there's no way to say who's at rest and who's moving. So if uh, you're out and observing that things are exactly the same whether you're moving or whether you're standing still and everything else is moving around you. And that there is no difference between space and time. They're not two separate things. They're two separate versions of the same thing. And that's what we call a space-time. So you unify them together, you call that space-time, but they're all interrelated together. So you can't separate space and time as we typically do in everyday life. Under Einstein's equation, space and time are constantly intertwined. So you can't separate the two of them. So no absolute frame of reference, no way to tell who's moving. So am I? You know, if I'm walking around the class, am I the one moving? Or am I standing still and everything else is moving? What Einstein says is that there's no experiment that we could do that could tell the difference between those two. There is no experimental way to say who is really doing the moving, that the results of the experiment should be the same regardless of whether I'm doing the moving, or you're doing the moving, or whether the sun is moving in a specific direction relative to a star, or that star is moving in a direction, an opposite direction relative to the sun. There's no experiment that we can do that will tell the difference between those two. So special relativity really has to do with motions and how things move. General relativity also has a postulate that says that if you're in a closed system, there's no way to tell if you are in a gravitational field or accelerating. So we're sitting here in the classroom, the windows are blocked off, there's no experiment that I can do that says that the experiment that I do would be exactly the same results whether I am standing, standing on the surface of the Earth or being accelerated out in space at, that exa- at the same rate. If, the, if I'm accelerating out in space and this building is constantly accelerating, then I would not be able to do any experiment. I could drop a ball, it's gonna fall to the ground exactly the same. Now, that doesn't mean being out in space. If you're out in space and not moving or moving at a constant speed, then you can certainly tell the difference. But what it's saying is that if you're out in space and you're accelerating, you're constantly moving faster, and you're moving at a higher velocity every single second than the second before, there's no experiment that I can do within that closed system. I don't have windows to look out and see any motion. There's no experiment that I can do to tell the difference between these two. So it's really relating accelerations to a gravitational force. And there's no way to tell the difference between the two of the between those two. Could be accelerating at the same rate, nine uh, nine point eight meters per second every second. If I'm going that much faster every second, if the uh, rocket is accelerating me at that rate, uh, again, no experiment that I can do will tell me the difference between those two. And what that means, what it, what it comes out to when you actually when you go through Einstein's equations is that matter bends space and time. So you look at that here, you have a, a table with a cloth stretched on it, and if you put something heavy in it, what Einstein says the gravitational field is, is that that piece of matter deforms space and time. Now we're looking at two dimensions. If you can take this as three or four dimensions and imagine it being warped, good for you. I can't. I can't imagine, you know, three dimensions and bending into a fourth dimension because we can't visualize it. It's not something with everyday experience. So we go down a dimension. Imagine space as this flat sheet. And if you put something very heavy on this sheet that everybody's holding, it will move down. It will bend that, and it will distort the space and time around it, and that's what a black hole does. The more mass you put there, right? If I put a tennis ball, hold a sheet, and we put a tennis ball on it, might dent it in a little bit. If we were to take a bowling ball and put it on there, it's going to dent it a lot more. The larger mass is going to make a bigger, bigger, um, bigger de- de- deforma- deformation of space. And a black hole, at the point of a black hole, means that that point becomes essentially infinitely deep. It goes down forever. But what that does is that redefines how things move. First of all, that's how it explains the orbits of the objects, each each object. The sun deforms space and time around it so that the earth then moves in the path defined by that new space-time that the sun has modified. So if the Sun were not there, the Earth would, not, would orbit straight, not because of forces, as Newton said, but because space would no longer be deformed. But it also bends the paths that light would take. So if you were to try to look at light near a black hole or near a gravitational object, you would, not, you would be able to see that it changed its position. And this was one of the first confirmations of Einstein's relativity that was done in 1919. Uh, shortly after he presented it, a couple of years afterwards. And what Einstein's theory is, d- did was make a prediction that said if you look at light near a gravitational object, it's going to be bent. Near a, st- a massive object. Well, the only massive object we have nearby that's really, really massive is the, is the sun. So what he says is that if you were to look at the stars now, And then look at the stars when the sun's, when they're passing right right by the edge of the sun, you should see a difference in the positions. And it made a prediction as to how much you would see, how much variation you would see in the positions of the stars. Well, all good and fine, but typically you can't observe stars by the sun, right? Stars kind of, sun's kind of bright, blocks out all the light from the stars. Except during a solar eclipse. Solar eclipse blocks out the light from the sun it becomes dark, it is nighttime, and the stars would come out. So an expedition was done to travel to the time of a solar eclipse to view it and to take pictures. Take pictures of the star field around the sun and then compare them to what would have been seen six months before when the sun was nowhere near that. And it was found that the the stars did deflect. Their starlight was deflected. So one of the predictions that Einstein's theory made that Newton's gravity does not was this bending of starlight. Let me see where I am. Um, you know what I'm gonna go ahead and stop right there because I have one other thing I want to do. I want to review this on Monday and then go back over that. So I'm gonna go ahead and stop. I don't think my voice would hold up to another another hour anyway. I do have a lab that a lab we can work on, so we'll catch up on our labs at least, get those get those caught up. And then I should be able to put a little bit more in. Hopefully about three days to rest my Voice will be back to normal on, on Monday. So hopefully, we get through chapter 13 and into 14 on Monday. If we don't get through 15 by Tuesday, then the exam will end up being on Thursday instead of on Wednesday. Yes, sir? I have a yeah? How do you access the pictures um, for access Because I looked on the content page and there's no way to do it. To get the pictures? Yeah. If you go on the, go on the photo here, okay. there's an archives link at the bottom. So do I just like... And that'll have every... Do I uh, click on the, the image on the, on the of the You can, or you can go right to the APOD.NASA.gov. Right up here. You get that? Don't worry about the archive here. Let me go back to the other one. That would be the regular website. apod.nasa.gov slash apod. You can go apod slash dot dot slash apod. And then you can go down to the archives. You should be able to do that direct from that site if you scroll on the homepage if you scroll to the bottom. You should still see this archive link. And if you click on that it will open up the archives. And that'll go back, you know, the last however many years they've been doing this of pictures. So, you know, that'll go back to what is it, 201995. So, but you can go and click any of them. You can look at any of them that way. Okay. Any other questions?